All right, Tyler, I have a tough question for you. All right, shoot. What makes a clinical ethics case really tough? What are the hardest cases that you encounter? That's a that's an interesting question because I think they're hard uh, for different people and probably in pretty different ways. The ones that are hard for me, you know, let me let me back up for a second. When I started getting into clinical ethics, I thought that the most challenging cases would be those that dealt with children, and mm-hmm. those are particularly because I have I had small children at the time when I started doing this. Um, this work. So I thought if there was cases with pediatric patients who were similar to my kids' ages, then that would be hard. And those are hard. But surprisingly, the ones that really kind of stick with me and that are hard, um, probably the hardest emotionally, are patients at the other end of the spectrum of life, elderly patients, patients who... maybe are in their 70s or older and for whom there is nobody in their lives who's able to or in a position to make decisions for them when they're unable to make their own. So patients who've lost the capacity to make their own medical treatments for a variety of reasons and they don't have any friends, maybe they're estranged from all their family, there's just nobody who is able to kind of speak on their behalf. Those are the ones that actually kind of stick with me. Yeah, those sometimes we call them unbefriended patients, uh, which is a terrible term, right? I also think about pediatric cases, and today we'll have a really tough pediatrics case. So get your Kleenex out. I cried a couple times. I'm going to edit that out of the podcast, my, my weeping, but it's a tough one. So they can be really tough. I also think sometimes cases of middle-aged people who have really aggressive terminal illness who, again, I think maybe because I identify with them, who are just dying much before their time, um, but have significant familial relationships. So, you know, people in the room who really care about them and are watching them die too soon. Those also can stick with me as being tough cases. Yeah, absolutely. When there's somebody who you know, has kids my same age and, you know, die in a, or injured in a significant accident or some aggressive illness. Yeah, those, those are hard too. So this season is all about tough cases. Some will be really heart-wrenching. Some will be a bit more fun. This case is maybe on the former side. So, so strap in, but uh, we need to say in all of the episodes for this season, which will all be tough cases, Any names you hear will be pseudonyms. We've de-identified. We've asked people to alter the case in ways that would never, you'd never know who these patients or physicians or healthcare team workers are. So that's an important caveat here Um, for ethical reasons. It's just important to always keep the identities of of anyone discussed de-identified. So we're going to de-identify all the players in these cases All right, so get ready for a tearjerker, but one, a a story I think is really important to hear. Welcome to this episode of Bioethics for the People, a podcast where we discuss bioethics and all the complex questions related to medicine, health, and society. I'm joined by my co-host, clinical ethicist extraordinaire, sometimes lawyer, and all-around boss at Western Michigan, Tyler Gibb. And she is the birther of babies, the birther of books, the Baylor bear, the bell of bioethics, Dr. Devin Stahl. Welcome to this episode of Bioethics for the People. Today we're joined by Dr. Jessica Turnbull. She's an assistant professor in the Center for Biomedical Ethics and Society at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. She's also a pediatric intensivist and a life coach for women physicians. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is an exciting opportunity. We're we're happy to have you, of course. And and I've been told, so we don't know your case. We're kind of coming into this without a whole lot of knowledge. We're going to play it out like we would if we were the clinical ethicists. I have been told this relates to your work as a pediatric intensivist, which is not my specialty at all. So get ready for some hot takes that are probably pretty uninformed, at least from me. How about you, Tyler? Yeah, I'm a pediatric intensivist in my spare time. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> just side hustle. So you'll totally get it. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> so Jesse, give us a little entree into the story. How did you get, was this a consult that you got or just a case that you ran into? So this is a case that came into me for my ICU life. Uh, it came in kind of the end of the winter a couple years ago. We got a call from our emergency room that we had a baby coming in whose heart had stopped at home for some reason. Uh, and he had gotten CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, and was coming into our emergency room. We tend to get these heads ups in the intensive care unit just so we can have our staff aware and have everybody aware of you know what's coming in. Um, this baby, Alfie, was a four month old who was born a little bit premature. And the emergency room got the history that he had choked at home and then was really looking like he wasn't doing well at home. So mom called EMS. Upon the EMS getting to the house, Alfie kind of took one big distressed breath and then became unresponsive. EMS was unable to feel a pulse and so they started CPR. EMS conducted CPR for about 10 minutes en route to our hospital. And then um, our emergency room took over CPR and conducted an additional 10 minutes of CPR. They uh, saw that with Alfie's heart having stopped that he also wasn't breathing appropriately. So they placed a breathing tube and started breathing for him with a bag valve mask. And then with the breathing tube being placed in that total of about 20 minutes of CPR, his heart started again. And then with that, they ran some initial labs and got some initial images, and then they sent him up to us in the intensive care unit. So that was the story that uh, we were working with when we were working to stabilize him. <clears throat> so my first physical exam uh, was unfortunately quite poor. Um, Alfie wasn't moving to stimulation. And so you can imagine having a piece of plastic in your airway, the breathing tube is a pretty annoying stimulus. And so we typically have even babies need a little bit of sedating medications in order to tolerate having the breathing tube in place. And he was unresponsive to having the breathing tube in place. He didn't move his arms or legs when we would kind of push on his fingers and toes. Um, his pupils would react when we would shine light in them, but in an abnormal way. And he also didn't have any of the baseline mm, nerve exam that we would expect. So typically, even if you have a breathing tube in place, if we place a suction catheter down the breathing tube, the patient should cough. Even with a breathing tube in place, if we stimulate the back of the throat with a Q-tip, the patient should gag. And he didn't have any of those. The other thing that we found on his neurologic exam is that he had a pattern of breathing on the mechanical ventilator that we call agonal breathing. And agonal breathing is a very disorganized, infrequent, deep manner of breathing that signifies a really significant brain injury. Um, that was really what was significant on his physical exam. His heart was beating fine. His blood pressure was needing a little bit of help with a continuous infusion of epinephrine to maintain a blood pressure that was good enough to make sure that we were getting blood to all of his organs. His lungs sounded okay. His belly felt okay. And his skin looked okay. And that was, that was kind of what we were working with when he first got to us. So tell us why it sounded like from the beginning of your story that he was having cardiac issues. So tell us, tell us how you, his brain got injured, right? That that's what all of the mm -hmm. tests you were doing were were looking at his neurological status or like the ways in which his brain was or wasn't functioning. Uh, can you make that connection for us? Yeah, absolutely. So when we got the history that he had choked at home and then had progressed to needing CPR, when I hear that history, I say, okay. He choked on something and was having such trouble breathing that his oxygen saturations in his blood fell to a point where his heart couldn't beat anymore. And so that's how I was putting his story together. And then the neurologic injury, <clears throat> whenever we have a period where our heart isn't beating effectively, just like not beating effectively on its own and then heart beating so ineffectively that you have to have CPR, that's a period of time where all of the organs are, of the body aren't getting good blood flow. And so 
what was so concerning about the history of his heart stopping and needing 20 minutes of CPR, and then the neurologic exam that we saw when he got to the pediatric intensive care unit, is that, wow, his heart had been not beating well for so long uh, that his brain had been without oxygen for such a significant period of time that now he was already showing us that he had some pretty significant brain injury. Got it. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, Jesse. So when I hear this story, the first thing I think is, like you just said, we're really worried about his brain mm -hmm. um, and what that'll mean. It, and so I think we're worried about that. One thing that I would immediately think is this is tragic for any child, but this family is going to feel particularly guilty because perhaps they feel like they allowed him to choke or they gave him something that allowed him to choke. And so they're going to come in potentially with a lot of feelings of guilt that'll need to be attended to, which might make the case tricky. Mm -hmm. Is that is that what you thought? Yeah, and the details around that were that uh, Alfie was kind of hanging out with his older brother and sister. Um, and by hanging out, I mean, he's the four month old. So he's just kind of laying there, hanging out with his brother and sister. And his brother and sister were five and seven years old approximately. And um, mom said that they were kind of playing with things and that they maybe, maybe Alfie got a hold of some of the things that they were playing with and maybe that was what had led him to choke. So when you suggest, wow, parents are going to feel guilty about this, uh, there were lots of levels of feeling guilty. You know, why did I leave him with his siblings? Why didn't I keep a closer eye on him? What else could I have done? There were there were lots of emotions running pretty high. Yeah. But of course, there's no ethics case yet. So tell us how it came to become an ethics case. So over our initial evaluation of any baby that comes in in a weird way, one of the things that we do is get lots of different labs and lots of different images. Some of the images that we got for Alfie are uh, a head cat scan and a neck cat scan and a chest uh, abdomen pelvis cat scan, as well as what we call a skeletal survey. And so a skeletal survey is an x-ray of every single bone in the body to look for some sort of injury. In Alfie's situation, he had lacerations to his brain, uh, specifically the frontal lobes, which are exactly as they sound. They're the lobes that are in the front of your brain. And then he also had skull fractures on both sides of his skull, the parietal bones of his skull. And in a four-month-old baby who really can't generate enough force to move around and cause such a significant amount of trauma, having brain lacerations and skull fractures makes us extremely concerned that the baby has been abused. The other thing that we found on the skeletal survey was that Alfie had fractures in his right leg that again, in a four month old baby who doesn't really move around a whole lot, the only way that he would have been able to have fractures of that leg would be if somebody had abused him. Yeah. So, and what are your obligations there for reporting or what do you do next when you suspect that a child's been abused like that? Mm -hmm. We come cross this frequently enough that most if not all children's hospitals have a specialized team of doctors that care for and evaluate for child abuse and so at our institution um, we got those folks involved and then they are frequently very helpful in being serving as a liaison with Department of Child Services and the social workers who would be necessary to help support the patient and the family and the investigation process that happens. So we got those folks involved. Mm -hmm. um, throughout this time, so this took a couple days to have this concern. Um, we were honestly watching for Alfie to progress to brain death because his brain injuries were very severe. And so we were fully supporting him, fixing everything that we could possibly fix, but really wondering if he was going to be able to survive his initial injuries. When we relayed to the family that we were concerned that somebody had abused him, they were, of course, distraught. They were, they were sad. They were, they were frustrated. They were angry. They were scared. Um, and we worked with them very closely to support them how we could. <clears throat> we ended up watching for Alfie to progress to brain death for 
a few days typically if babies are going to progress to brain death because of bad brain injuries they'll do it within about four or five days of presenting to the hospital and alfie's course didn't go that way it became obvious that he was going to survive his injuries and not progress to brain death but he was going to survive his injuries in such a way that um he was not able to see and he was not able to hear he was not able to interact with his environment in any way and he wouldn't be able to come off of the mechanical ventilator if he were going to survive his course he would require a mechanical ventilator for the rest of his life mm -hmm. and was it was the fear that his brain injury was because of the abuse or because of the choking incident or is that too hard to tell no um it's never possible to tell if you're not there observing all of the things that led up to the hospital presentation what makes sense uh, is that he was abused to the point that he couldn't breathe that displayed as his breathing becoming labored and then choking and then his heart stopped and then he uh, came into us and so i think the reason that his brain injury was as bad as it was is because he had been abused and then his heart stopped. So then he had brain injury on top of the traumatic injury uh, that he had sustained. So at this point, I'm thinking, you know, there's a decision point here. Mm -hmm. If we know some of that prognosis, we know that the that Alfie's going to survive, but, you know, have all these other comorbidities, all these other issues. We would typically then describe that to parents and ask them if they want to continue with the mechanical ventilation. But with this family, we don't know that they're not involved in the abuse somehow, right? And so are they then the decision makers? Maybe they're not. Or at what point do we say, we actually don't, we won't let you make this decision because we suspect child abuse? I actually, I don't know the answer to that. So what do you do? Who do you turn to to make decisions? Clinical ethicists. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we actually met with Alfie's mom and dad and said, here is his course. Here is what we think happened. He would not be able to live outside of an intensive care unit without continuous mechanical ventilation and a, and a, and a tracheostomy. And we actually told the family that we felt that that was not in his best interest and we needed to withdraw life-sustaining therapy. We assume, rightly so, that families are the best decision makers for their kids, right? Um, they love them the most. They are the primary stakeholders. They know their kids the most. But what we bumped up against when we as an institution were thinking about Alfie having a tracheostomy and mechanical ventilation was whether it was medically appropriate for him to have a tracheostomy and mechanical ventilation. We started looking at our critical care, our ICU professional guidelines. And there are a couple definitions in the literature who, that came out in the mid 2010s that talk about when treatment is futile versus when it's medically inappropriate. Very briefly, we try hard to only use the word futile when treatment will not physically or physiologically work. We're trying to get very granular on when we use the word futile because it's it's become a very value-laden term sometimes such that when somebody says the word feudal, everybody gets their hackles up and it's harder to have a calm academic prefrontal conversation about what should be done. So we're trying really, really hard to reserve the word feudal when something will not physically or physiologically work. And so the examples that I typically give for that are, it is futile to give antibiotics for a viral infection. That's not how antibiotics work. That's not how viruses work. It's futile. Even more a little crystallizing is it's futile to conduct CPR in a body that's been dead so long rigor mortis has set in. It's not physically or physiologically going to work. Anything else that may give us pause uh, treatment-wise, we, we might be able to consider it being medically inappropriate. And that's what these two documents in the mid-2010s uh, delineated. They're both documents from the Society of Critical Care Medicine. And one of the categories that these documents says is treatment could be considered medically inappropriate is when the intervention sustains a, a patient 
that has become so neurologically injured that he or she is unable to perceive the benefit of ongoing treatment. And we're using the term benefit there very specifically. It's not benefit like good. It's it's not that, it's that the patient has become so neurologically injured that they cannot perceive or display any ongoing interaction with life. And so we're very deliberate to be narrow in that sense, because this is not a statement of, unless you're neurologically perfect, we're okay with drawing life-sustaining therapy. No, 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 that's not what this is. This is the brain activity is such that we're doing things to the patient, not for the patient by continuing treatment. And so our group uh, and our institution really felt that tracheostomy and mechanical intervention for Alfie would be medically inappropriate because of his degree of brain injury. And so with that, we actually informed the family that we would not be offering tracheostomy and mechanical ventilation and that we would need to work with them to start to withdraw life-sustaining therapy. So that's where our ethics group got in. <laughs> um, it wasn't so much who can make the decision, it's, well, we're taking one of the options off the table because mm -hmm. we feel the option shouldn't be an option. How did the, the family respond to that conversation? Yeah, they were angry. They were very angry. Um, they were concerned that what we were doing was illegal. We worked very closely with our Office of Legal Affairs before we came to this determination that we would not be offering tracheostomy and mechanical ventilation. The family was very worried that they were being discriminated against and that we would we would not do this to some other family. Um, and they were also just incredibly sad that Alfie had gotten so sick that these were the conversations that they were actually taking part in. So as a clinical ethicist, when you're thinking about that conversation, and these are conversations that we have not infrequently, right? Thankfully, they don't happen all the time, but, but these kind of conversations are hard. So how do you prepare yourself or your team to having going into that room and having that conversation? The thing that I figured out a little while ago is that we need to be comfortable in the discomfort, you know? Nobody calls ethics just to say good morning. Nobody calls ethics to ask how our day is going and just kind of shoot the breeze. And so by the time ethics is getting involved, everything is already pretty complicated and nauseating. <laughs> so I think the best way that I've become better at coming into these situations is just being like, yeah, this is gonna be uncomfortable. This is gonna be hard. And that's okay because I can sit in the uncomfortable and hard. Because if I start telling myself that this should be easy and that, that, well, then I'm just arguing with reality. And that's frankly not helpful in just adding suffering on top of the already uncomfortable and hard. So I've just stopped adding my own additional suffering by telling myself, yeah, I should be able to figure this out immediately, or yeah, I, I shouldn't be affected by this or whatnot. You know, that's just arguing with reality and it's not helpful, frankly. Yeah, so I imagine this conversation's not easy with any family ever, right? This is always going to be tough. And then this family reacts very badly. Mm. So then, you know, I think the question comes up of like, you've already decided you're not going to offer these things. Are you going to be convinced? Is there anything they could say that would convince you that maybe you would offer it? Or is it just a moot point? Mm -hmm. Right, so how does it proceed from there if they're pushback is really aggressive. I find sometimes when families push back really hard, teams are more likely to just, it's just easier to say yes than to continue to have that fight for better or worse. Yes. And I will answer your question, but first I'm going to reflect on what you just said. Luckily, we don't tell families no very often. Once in years, <laughs> we will tell families no to this degree, right? And so one of the things that that we've really been wrestling with is what's worse doing this hard thing that's the that we feel the right thing is for the patient and saying no or doing the easy thing and saying okay we'll do the tracheostomy and mechanical ventilation but then die a death by a thousand cuts every time that kid comes back into our hospital 
because he is going to be chronically critically ill for the rest of his life. And even if we do the tracheostomy mechanical ventilation, that is not going to be a life outside of the hospital that is not so exquisitely medicalized. Your statement of sometimes it's easier to just to just do what the family wants. You're absolutely right. And what we're wrestling with now is, well, then what's the right thing? The really hard, really acute, we're not going to do this and we're going to withdraw life-sustaining therapy or, okay, we will support your autonomy family and do what you want, even though we think it is frankly maleficent to the patient and then we continue to take care of the patient and the family for the months and frankly years uh, that that the child will will continue to be alive. I don't know that I have an answer to that. If any of the listeners have an answer to that, will you please email me and let me know because it's something that that we're really thinking hard about. Well, in this case, saying no to Alfie's family, we had a we had another group involved, right? We had Department of Child Services involved. We had legal institutions involved. We started to work with them to say, okay, what does this mean that we are at this impasse? To really make sure we were appropriately at the impasse, even though we as an institution, this wasn't just one doctor saying no to this family. This was the entire institution. And so one of the things that we wanted to make sure of as an institution were that we weren't inappropriately pushing our institutional values on the family. And then that was going to lead to the, not lead to the death of their child, but you know, be associated with the death of their child. So while we were working with our Department of Child Services and our Office of Legal Affairs about what should be done, we reached out to peer institutions to say, this is Alfie's situation. We did our best to remain as objective as possible when we were describing Alfie's situation to the peer institutions. And then we've said, we have said it is medically inappropriate for him to undergo tracheostomy and chronic mechanical ventilation. Do you, peer institutions, agree, disagree? And the four peer institutions that we reached out to all said that it was medically inappropriate for Alfie to have tracheostomy and chronic mechanical ventilation and that we were supported in withdrawing life-sustaining therapy. And so I think that's important, right? Because no institution can force us to do something that we think is medically inappropriate. However, if we reach out to four peer institutions and 50% of them say he shouldn't have a tracheostomy and mechanical ventilation, and 50% of them say he should, well, we're not obligated to go along with those who say he should, but it would certainly give us pause, right? If 50% of our peers said we were in the right and 50% of our peers said we were in the wrong, we would really have to re-examine if we were in the right or not. In this case, all four peer institutions said that it was medically inappropriate for Alfie to have tracheostomy and chronic kind of mechanical ventilation. And we discussed that with his mom and dad uh, we had actually asked for their input of which peer institutions would you want us to reach out to? Because we certainly didn't want to give the impression that we were stacking the deck and just kind of reaching out to our friends who would agree with us. And they had input into the peer institutions that we reached out to. That took some time. And concurrently with that time, the Department of Child Services and our Office of Legal Affairs decided that rather, rather than withdraw life-sustaining therapy over the objection of the parents as an institution, perhaps we should go to court to see if the court would allow Department of Child Services to have the jurisdiction to make that decision for Alfie. So it is different in whatever state you're in, maybe even whatever city you're in, county you're in, I don't know. The ability of Department of Child Services to remove decision-making from families is very different across the board. Where we are, the patient would have to be involved with Department of Child Services for a year prior to Department of Child Services being able to start the proceedings to remove decision-making from the parents. 
obviously an unsavory idea to support this patient in an intensive care unit for over a year until Department of Child Services can start the process of removing decision-making from the parents. And then it's not a quick process. The shortest process is approximately six months. So that's where the idea came of, okay, rather than your institution, my institution, withdrawing life-sustaining therapy over family objection, Department of Child Services can't make the decision to withdraw life-sustaining therapy over the family objection. Let's go to court and see if a judge will give Department of Child Services the jurisdiction to do so. In that, I was very grateful that our Office of Legal Affairs um, started uh, the process of having a guardian ad litem appointed for Alfie. Because at the end of the day, we're doing a bunch of talking about Alfie and he can't advocate for himself. He can't tell us what he wants. Um, and so then in addition to his parents, our institution, the legal system, Department of Child Services, I was very grateful that Alfie had his own legal advocate to help us figure out what the right thing to do was. Oh, this is, it's complicated. I see why you brought this case, right? <laughs> and you hate to, I mean, I think ethicists don't love to bring things to the courts unless they absolutely have to. It's I, I think of that as like a last resort. Yes. And so you're feeling like you need a last resort option. Yes. And, you know, it's so interesting. Ethics and legalities track the vast majority of the time, right? A lot of times the ethical thing to do is the legal thing to do and vice versa. In this case, we were really talking about undertaking something that was irreversible. Once a child dies, there are no other choices to be made, right? And so that's why we wanted to mobilize as many resources as possible to say, we really need to make sure we're doing the right thing. And so that was why we thought the best thing to do was go to family court to decide about withdrawing life-sustaining therapy over Alfie's parents' objections. Are you running up against a time limit here because his condition isn't changing, but you're gonna have to decide on trach at some point fairly soon, I would think. You can't continue on other kinds of ventilation for more than a couple weeks. I'm not sure if it's different in children, but at some point, are you worried you're not gonna get a judgment from a judge before that happens? So with the initial conversations of how sick Alfie was, we told his mom and dad that if he would decompensate to the point of needing CPR again, that he, that we would not do it, that he would have a do not resuscitate mm -hmm. order in place. And his parents gave their passive assent for that. You know, babies are very sturdy in our ICU care and our medical care is very, very good. So throughout this entire process, we're now weeks into this admission, he was so stable. Uh, he was mm -hmm. tolerating mechanical ventilation without any complications. He was tolerating enteral nutrition via continuous feeds without any complications. He was not getting any infections. We were taking care of him in an intensive care unit without even a peripheral IV in place. He was so stable. So you'd think we were in a time crunch, but in this case, it seemed that we weren't. Uh, the calculus is also a little bit different in pediatrics about tracheostomy versus adults. So because adults have big airways, um, they tolerate tracheostomy really well. In children, it's a little bit different because their airways are so little and there's such a small margin for error when it comes to a tracheostomy being in versus being out. We do tend to wait longer for tracheostomy in children than we do in adults. So that calculus is a little bit different. So you're bringing it to court. So we're bringing it to I, court. I will, uh, I, I'm, I'm nervous. I just, my gut is like, judges are really conservative, right? The, the obligation to preserve life is really strong. It's often the case that these judges will err on the side of life even in cases that we think are medically inappropriate. So I'm nervous for you in this case, but please tell us what um, happens. So we, it took about a month to get a court date. Ugh. And so by that point, it was about six weeks into Alfie's course. At the court date, the judge uh, heard the case and then issued a continuance until another two weeks. So then we went back for a continuance. 
And then she took it under advisement. And I am not a lawyer. So whenever I start using legal jargon, I think I'm using the term properly, but I'm not exactly sure. She took it under advisement and said that she would have a decision for us within 72 hours. A month later, we got our judgment. Oh, oh my God. No. <laughs> and she said that the court did not have the jurisdiction to decide who should decide about withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy. The court said that it wasn't them. They did not say that it was the parent's job. They also did not say it was the institution's job. They just said it was not them. Oof. <laughs> Oof. Um, that's super unhelpful. That's not So that's not just merely unhelpful. That's harmful, right? So that that has prolonged this conflict for weeks and weeks and weeks, right? Um, that's really disappointing. But but then again, like I'm I'm not an expert on Tennessee law either. So the judge might be absolutely right. So. We were really careful with our Office of Legal Affairs before we went to court, right? And Tennessee law states that hospitals and physicians are under no obligation to continue medically inappropriate treatment. The law itself does not delineate what medically inappropriate treatment is. And so we were very deliberate about saying, per the Society of Critical Care Medicine, professional organizations, statements, this is why ongoing mechanical ventilation for Alfie is medically inappropriate to really make sure that we said, okay, we're working with Tennessee law. He is getting treatment that is medically inappropriate per, per, per professional society statements. Tennessee law says that we are not obligated to start or continue medically inappropriate treatment. And I think the point that it drove home for me was in in ethics i have said and i and i've heard other clinical ethicists say it the court doesn't want to weigh in on cases like this right the court wants the families and the medical systems to figure it out on their own because courts rightly say well we're not medical providers well we're not the the parents of these kids you guys have to do your absolute best to try to figure this out without involving the court well we tried our absolute best to figure it out without involving the court and we involved the court anyway. And so what this po point really palpably drove home for me was lawyers and judges don't want, they, they don't want cases like this. They really want us to be able to figure them out as loved ones and medical providers and clinical ethicists and, and as clergy who we involved and social workers who we involved and hospital administrators who we involved and palliative care teams who we involved like we really got everybody we possibly could to try to figure this out and then what was supposed to be well you know tennessee law says this so we'll go to court to see if to see about tennessee law saying that then that didn't work jesse it's like you had two really hard options like just don't do it and live with the consequences of this family being very upset. Do it, do what they want and live with the recurrence of this child coming again and again. You chose an even harder third way that didn't result in anything you wanted either. So was that the right move? Would you have done that again to try to involve the courts? Knowing what I know now, I mean, I think we have to, you know, because we're honestly talking about withdrawing life-sustaining therapy over a family's objections. And so I think this is a situation where the right thing to do is the hard thing to do. I think we need to make sure that we have exhausted every option. We have looked under every rock. We have crossed every T. We have dotted every I. Because the ultimate outcome is awful no matter what. And, you know, and I think I also want to be very deliberate that when that when I say we were looking into the future going, oh, if Alfie gets a tracheostomy and, and mechanical ventilation, he's going to be bouncing in and out of our ICU for however long. It's not just that that is hard for us. Right. That's hard for his family. And we have already done, I think, irreparable 
terrible damage to the therapeutic relationship by even undergoing this path in the first place. So if then he undergoes tracheostomy and mechanical ventilation, of course the family is not going to trust us. Of course they're not going to like us, right? There is not another institution in the area that they could safely go to from what he would need medically. And so if Alfie was going to end up with a tracheostomy and mechanical ventilation, I wanted to make sure that, okay, well, legally, that's what the court said we had to do. So that way we could kind of start, hopefully, maybe start from zero with the family again to be like, okay, we've all been through this awful thing together and here's what the court decided. So let's try to build a new relationship based on that. So as much as I've thought about this case, thank you for asking me because I've never actually asked, would I go through it again? but I think we would have to go through it again. Luckily, we've not been in this situation before, or we've not been in this situation since. We've had a couple of instances where we've told families whose children have not gotten into us because they've been abused. We've told families we are not going to do the tracheostomy and mechanical ventilation because their neurologic status is such that it is medically inappropriate to do so. And the families have ended up acquiescing after we've gone through our multidisciplinary process, after we've gotten our second opinions from peer institutions, after that, the couple families that we've had in this situation subsequently have been able to say, wow, like this is really bad. We're not gonna be able to get what we want no matter where we are and no matter what institution. And they're actually, they've the couple that we've had have actually been able to come to a really sad but loving acceptance of gosh this is just the situation we're in and we've not had to entertain the option of going to court subsequently the sticky wicket here was the fact that alfie was abused and so i do think the family had a conflict of interest in making decisions for him i do think they knew that charges against one or both or whoever did this to him would change based on whether he lived or died that's a long-winded answer to your question. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that's what I was thinking too is are they are they conflicted in part because they could be charged legally with homicide if he were to die versus if he stays alive in this state? And I know that I've had cases where that's a question and it's it's horrible to think about and you'll never really know mm -hmm. how they internalize that if that's really swaying their decision or not. But surely it runs through your mind. Yes. Yes. And I think for more than just running through your mind, it becomes, in, in my experience, in similar cases that are, you know, granted terrible, that it starts becoming a, a narrative or a story that gets told amongst other healthcare providers, right? And then we start to question all types of decision making um, from the, the family and they get painted with a certain type of brush that maybe is... Uh, maybe is not appropriate um, or not accurate, I guess. But that man, that's a that, that is a that's a case that will uh, that will haunt you and your team. And Jessica, can you tell us ultimately what happened? So um, after the judge said that it was not within her jurisdiction to weigh in on Alfie's life sustaining therapy, uh, the next day, we notified his mom and dad that the breathing tube would be withdrawn with medicines for pain and anxiety in place, that the breathing tube would be withdrawn in 48 hours. And so that was the time to have other family visit. That was the time to work with child life so that his siblings could come in and visit him and they could do some memory making. We do some just really beautiful interventions at the end of life where our child life specialists work with siblings to make painted handprints with um, the patient who is at end of life. Um, and we, we really wanted to make sure that there were opportunities for all of that to happen. And then uh, on the day and the time that we told his family uh, that life-sustaining therapy was going to be withdrawn, we administered opiates enterally for um, air hunger and pain control empirically. And then we administered a benzodiazepine enterally uh, to assure sedation during the dying process. And we removed his breathing tube. And... Um, 
clergy was there and child life was there and social work was there and his mom held him uh while his while he died uh and it was it was horrible for everybody involved even though i i do still deeply believe it was the right thing to do for alfie it was he was comfortable um luckily his brain injury was so severe that just the medicines that we gave him prior to withdrawing the breathing tube even though we gave them through his feeding tube because he didn't have an iv um he was comfortable the entire time his mother was distraught and it was awful and his father was angry and it was awful and uh it took two and a half hours for alfie's heart to stop beating and we stayed with them the entire time because we felt it was important because we were all in this awful together and then after two and a half hours i pronounced his time of death because I was the physician who was uh, directing the end of life care, I took the temperature of the room and knew that my job was kind of done and my support was no longer necessary or welcome after his time of death was, uh, was called. And so I left the room. His mom and dad stayed with him for about an hour afterwards and, um, and they did a final bath and they put him uh, kind of in a new outfit because um, with the dying process, he had, um, you know, had some, had some, um, he had gotten the outfit that he was in during the process dirty. And so they put him in a new outfit. Um, and then when his body was ready to go down to the morgue, his, his mom and dad left and his mom actually thanked his bedside nurse for taking such good care of him. And she was she was in an understanding, accepting spot, but still, of course, very sad. And so that she was able to thank his bedside nurse. I really liked that for his bedside nurse because she did a very, very good job taking care of him. And so I, I am appreciative that his mom was able to do that for her. So when you have these really complicated, hard, hard cases, um, as a clinical ethicist, how do you take care of yourself? How do you process this? It, it, it like what what are what are the strategies that you've learned in order to to deal with this emotionally? Yeah, so I was very cognizant the entire time that a um, potential conflict of interest is a real conflict of interest, and so since I was also Alfie's intensive care doctor. I was very deliberate to make sure that I wasn't wearing both my ICU and my ethics hat when we were getting to the granularity of his case. And so I'm extremely grateful to my clinical ethics colleagues who helped with the case. My clinical ethics colleagues were amazing in the, I mean, I have to call it immediate aftermath of this case. I think, I think it would take a little bit of a sociopath not to be affected by this case. Um, and so they were fantastic with, you know, checking in with me and debriefing and, and validating and answering questions that I had. I think having a good team around you is so good for pers personal and professional stability. And so I'm deeply grateful to my ethics colleagues who worked with me at the time. I have to say, I'm also deeply, deeply grateful for my ICU colleagues. Um, we are a very close knit group and um, they are very good for listening when I just needed an ear. And they're also good for helping me problem solve when I needed to problem solve. And I think that's that would be a nugget that I would give to folks who listen to this. Know when you need to vent and know when you need to problem solve and tell the people who are listening to you what you need. Because if I need to vent and somebody's trying to help me problem solve, that's just gonna make me angrier. So I think it's important to know what you need in the moment and tell the person you're with, hey, I, I just need to get this off my chest. Please don't try to help me fix this right now. Or I'm looking for a solution, please help me fix it. And then I've tried really hard to give myself grace because this case was years ago. And I still think about it and I still marinate on it and I still second guess and I still validate. 
And I've been working really hard in the interim to figure out what are we as a group and what are we as an institution doing when it comes to cases like this. I think cases like this are going to become more frequent and not just babies who have been abused, who we think is medically inappropriate. I, I think patients and families requesting is a gentle word, demanding treatment that we're just like, ah, gosh, that's not the right thing to do. I think as patient courses are getting more complicated and as medical technology and information expands, I think these cases are going to get more frequent and even more complicated. And so maybe the biggest way that I've been coping with this case is going, okay, guys, what are we doing? How are we doing it? What are we gonna do for the next? Okay, what did we learn from that one? How can we make it better the next time? And better for all involved, not just me and my colleagues and my institution, like better for the families and better for everything. Um, I think that's the way that I've really been coping with this case for the last few years is, all right, don't let what you learned go to waste. And frankly, you guys having me on the podcast, maybe maybe that's part of that, right? Getting my story out and being like, okay, guys, here's what I went through. If everybody listening goes through something of the same flavor, how can you make it better? You know what I mean? Maybe, maybe, maybe you guys having me on as part of that process. Hmm. We'd like to think so, but um, we, thank you so much, Jesse, for sharing what is what was obviously a very, very difficult case and being able to talk about it as eloquently as you had. I was like tearing up. I'm glad this isn't video <laughs> recorded because it's it was tough. That's a tough case. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. This was fun. All right. This was fun in like the most awful way. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bioethics for the People. For more information about today's topics, please visit us at bioethicsforthepeople.com. Special thanks to Darian Goldenstall for the podcast-related artwork, Christopher Wright for composing and recording the music, and Cameron Swayze for audio engineering support. Mm -hmm.